Hi. I want to begin by thanking the organizers of this conference for putting it together in this alternative setting. Today, I'm presenting a talk on the situated character of perceptual experience. My aim is to show that we can do justice to this aspect of perception by claiming that perception is social all the way down. In addition to this, I argue that a predictive version of sensory-motor inactivism can provide a plausible story to account for this. Okay, so firstly, what do I mean when I say that perceptual experience is situated? Well, some approaches within the phenomenological tradition hold that we are situated agents. And the idea, very roughly, is that we are never just embedded in a given context. Instead, the social, historical, political, economic, and personal circumstances we inhabit are marked in our body. One consequence of this view is that our social circumstances shape our mental lives. This consequence, for instance, is already noted by de Beauvoir in her review of the phenomenology of perception, where she claims that, and I quote, all perception in general presupposes an indefinite past lying behind oneself, a communication with the world that is older than thought. She's quoting here the uh, Merleau-Ponty, and she continues, which is made concrete by the fact of my birth. My history is incarnated in a body that possesses a certain generality, a relationship with the world prior to myself. So if the Beauvoir's analysis is on the right track, our situation should be in consequence reflected, for instance, in the way we carry ourselves, in the way we relate to others, in the way we think, and of course, crucial for my purposes, in the way we perceive the world. So this is the idea I want to do justice to. My plan for today is the following. I begin by articulating Iris Marion Young's view of feminine comportment. I then turn to Ainjap Jacobson's articulation of the question about the influence of society in perception. In the third part of the talk, I introduce a couple of examples that show that Jacobson's account does not cover all of the interesting ways in which perception is social. In the final section, I introduce the predictive approach to sensory-motor inactivism and explain how we can do justice to the situated character of perceptual experience. Jung's view can come in handy to articulate the situated character of perceptual experience since she discusses how one aspect of situation, gender identity, shapes the way, for instance, women carry themselves in the world and execute certain tasks and activities. Jung's point of departure is her analysis of Erwin Strauss's observations of the way women and men grow a ball. What caught Strauss's attention is the difference between men and women in the performance of this task. He notices that there is a clear difference in the comportment of someone depending on their gender identity, both towards the world and towards space. While Jung dismisses Strauss's account, she remains interested in this difference of comportment. Unlike Strauss, Jung aims to show how this difference is due to a difference in situation. So drawing on the Beauvoir, 
she argues that there is a unity that grounds this typical feminine comportment. This is a unity of situation. A situation that is, of course, common only to a group of people living in a specific time and specific context. She defines an individual situation in terms of the circumstances that shape this existence. Now, according to Jung, it is possible to identify the situation as a modality of existence, that is, as a way of being in the world, a set of structures that constrains the way a group of individuals orient their body in the world. As mentioned, she's interested in the modality that is typical for the individuals who identify as women. Jung examines movements that are typically observed in women and finds certain features common to them. So, for instance, she speaks of the way women restrict certain movements, on the way how they position their feet, on the way they perform certain activities. And for her, this is due to the way they each use their bodies for certain tasks. She claims that, given differences in situation, men in some patriarchal societies summon the full possibilities of their muscular coordination, position, poise, and bearing. So we might not agree with this, but the, the idea is that there is a contrast between the possibilities that are summoned by men and the possibilities that are summoned by women. For young, women do not summon these possibilities. These possibilities are, of course, available to them in virtue of physical structures and in virtue of their bodies, their strength, their shape, etc. Yet, these do not appear as possibilities. Jung's point of departure is Merleau-Ponty's articulation of the body as the locus of subjectivity and intentionality analyzed in terms of the different capacities the body exhibits. The key idea is that in providing possibilities of action, so for instance, grasping an apple or turning to see the window or walking towards a door, the body opens the world to a subject. Some existential features of the feminine life body have consequences for the way space is experienced. The body opens a world of possibilities. The phenomenal space becomes apparent in relation to one's bodies and one's own possibilities of movement and action. Now, if this is so, the phenomenal space experienced by women is different. Women relate to space in a way that is ultimately reflected in the way they perform certain activities. And this ultimately originates from the relation to their bodies. Moreover, since motility is crucial for the development of other cognitive and perceptual capacities, Jung predicts that these existential categories impact women's performance in related cognitive and perceptual tasks. Jung holds the view that someone's situation shapes our mental lives and interactions with the world. And although she doesn't uh, articulate a view about the situatedness of perceptual experience, I dare to say that she would accept its plausibility. The thing is that these considerations only takes us so f take us so far in what concerns this claim. After all, from the fact that our situation has an impact on how we move, it doesn't follow immediately that it has an impact on how we move sent to sensory investigate the world. This concern arises at least in part from the position that is enjoyed by perception as a source of knowledge. Because 
social influence might hinder the role it has in this sense. This is the approach taken by Jacobson to address the question about the social aspect of perceptual experience. She notes that while perceptual experience is typically taken to be a reliable guide for the discovery of truth, it is also the case that knowledge is affected in many ways by our socio-historical circumstances. So, according to Jacobson's, Jacobson, it is only at later stages of visual processing, stages that are related, for instance, to the classification of objects, it is only then that perceptual processing relies on conceptual learning. And it is only at this point that perceptual experience can be said to receive social influence. This is so because based on previous learning, we fill in the gaps left by our sensory input. We draw for that on our socially learned concepts. Jacobson's thesis is that perception, then, is not social in itself, but in virtue of the interactions between perception and higher-order cognition. If perceptual experience is social, according to Jacobson, this is incidental on visual processing relying on higher-order cognitive processes. So let me move on now to the third part of the talk. To lend further plausibility to the thought that social influence is not reduced to conceptual influence, let me turn briefly to a couple of examples. I focus first on a case that shows the relevance on social, of social interaction to the development of certain perceptual capacities, and then to a case that shows that there are differences in perceptual experience across cultural groups. Let me start with the first example. Consider social referencing. Social referencing is the regulation of one's behavior on the basis of others, and I quote here Bermudez, of others' emotional reactions to a particular situation. In children's development, this is manifested when children face a puzzling, unfamiliar, or intimidating situation. Children look back at their carer, looking for guidance. So according to Bermudez, the children's behavior is influenced by the emotional response of the carer to the situation. Bermudez refers to an experiment by Kleiner and colleagues in which children were tested on the avoidance of a modified visual cliff. This test uses a modified platform with a clear glass plate with two sides, a shallow and a deep side. So below the shallow side, there is a checker, checker pattern uh, placed immediately below. On the deep side, on the other hand, the same pattern is placed below, but at a certain distance. And in this way, it makes it appear as a cliff. Cleaner and colleagues observe that 12-month-old children look for feedback from their care after looking at the deep side of the platform. While of the children whose care smile, most of them crossed to the deep side, none of the children whose care showed fear crossed. What this shows is that we learn how to interpret sensory information based on feedback from others. The cleave becomes something children should, should avoid in light of their care's reaction. Okay, let me now turn to the second example. This example concerns differences across individuals from different cultural backgrounds. 
and it concerns their susceptibility to the Miller-Lyer illusion. This illusion involves two or three arrows of the same length that differ in the direction to which their ends point, as you can see in the picture. In an extensive study by Siegel and colleagues, the authors showed that there are substantial differences in the susceptibility to the illusion depending on the cultural environment in which an individual spent their first 20 years of life. The authors analyzed 17 small-scale societies. According to Macaulay and Henry, the authors I am following, the difference is, has been attributed to the adaptation of the visual system to the local environment. Now, according to the examples just reviewed, perception is influenced by society in at least two ways in addition to the conceptual influence identified by J Jacobson. On the one hand, social interactions are relevant to the development of perceptual capacities, and on the other hand, social and cultural circumstances have an effect in perceptual content, for instance, in the susceptibility to perceptual illusions. So, depending on our social context, we might be better adapted to search and visual information. Now, what these two examples suggest is that perceptual experience is social all the way down. So, let me now turn to the fourth part of the talk. I will very briefly outline the two views on which I am relying. On the one hand, sensory motor and activism, a view originally advanced by Oregon and Noe in a 2001 paper, and on the other hand, the free energy approach, a thesis developed by Carl Freston, and then followed by many others. So let me start with sensory motor and activism. The central idea of sensory motor and activism is that perceivers are necessarily skillful agents. Perception is itself an interaction with the environment that requires the possession and exercise of practical knowledge. This is knowledge of the way sensory information changes after an interaction. The richness and detail of perceptual experience is explained by one's possession of that knowledge. Here in the picture we have Kevin O'Regan, one of the proponents uh, of this view. Now, sensory motor and activism already have some tools to account for important aspects of perceptual experience that depend on movement. And to an extent, it might be adequate to account for some of the things Jung is thinking about. Recall that she claims that we experience space differently given our gender identity. So surely this has an impact on the knowledge that is required for perceptual experience, according at least to sensory motor and activism. The problem is that the understanding of embodiment within this view is too limited since it refers mostly to morphological aspects, to the shape of our body, to the position of our limbs. The thing is that embodiment is richer than that. That is the point of the Vauvois claim I presented at the beginning. Recall that she claims that my history is incarnated in a body that possesses a certain generality, a relationship with the world prior to myself. Now, given other limitations of sensory motor and activism, which I do not discuss here, it has been proposed to bring together sensory motor and activism with predictive processing. So, 
Let me very briefly present this view. Okay, predict processing is a functional approach to neural dynamics that takes the brain to be driven by top-down processing. Very roughly, according to this view, perceptual processing is described as a cascade of predictions that is met by and adjusted on the basis of incoming stimuli. An example that can be useful to illustrate the position advanced by the framework relates to visual tracking. Think, for instance, of the capacity to follow a visual cue without explicit knowledge of where it is heading, so for instance, following a bird flying in the sky. According to predictive processing, this capacity can be explained by taking the brain to predict the position of the bird as it moves. This prediction, the position of the bird, is inferred on the basis of the brain's best model of the world. The advanced prediction is met at a lower level by incoming stimuli. The prediction then is compared against, against this input, providing error feedback on the prediction. In addition to processing error feedback, the brain also processes the reliability and salience of this feedback. This is what is called precision. Error feedback is given more or less weight depending on its reliability. Now, there is another thesis at the vicinity of predictive processing, but that is, strictly speaking, a theory about the adaptive behavior of biological systems. From this perspective, predictive processing, which is what I just described, is just one way to implement this theory of biological systems. This is the free energy approach. I do not get into much detail. What I do want to emphasize is that what is relevant about the free energy approach is the way they see the model from which predictions are generated. According to the free energy approach, the biological system is an embodied agent whose boundaries are defined in virtue of its interactions with the environment. Moreover, it is the whole agent that constitutes the generative model, both at a neural level and at a bodily level. Okay. So how does this all come together? The idea is that practical knowledge that is required for perceptual experience according to sensory modern activism is supported by the generative model. From this perspective, perception is supported by the coding of sensory modern knowledge both at a neural and at a bodily level. In that sense, perception is an instance of an embodied and inactive process. It is embodied in that the brain and the body recapitulate the environment, and it is inactive in that it enacts or brings forth its own rules and parameters of constitution. Neural and bodily structures recapitulate the interactions of the system. Now, some authors have defended that these views can already make a sense for the relevance of culture. For Kirchhoff and Kieberstein, for instance, the generative model tracks our engagement in social and cultural practices. For them, and I quote, it is our ability to maintain attunement with irregularities in a cultural practice that can, depending on the context, exert a powerful influence on the perceptual processing of a sensory signal. Kirchhoff and Kieberstein add that our attunement is not only to a context, but, and I quote, to expectations between people. 
The idea is that we share a common world with those with whom we engage in cultural practices. Consequently, we likely share a model of the world. However, one aspect that is crucial and that is left out of Kirchhoff and Kieberstein's analysis is that this attunement will depend not only on the context and not only on the task that is at hand. It will also depend in an important way on who that individual is and, in consequence, on certain aspects of the individual situation. The reason for this is that the context to which we have to adapt is not the same for everybody, nor are the expectations from others. Our social identity makes a difference in the way we participate in these social practices. And that is precisely the point of Jung's analysis. Even when we engage in the same practice, within the same context, gender identity plays a role in determining the space of possibilities and expectations. So, for instance, when throwing the ball, the proprioceptive prediction of someone who identifies as a woman in a certain context will be different from that of someone who identifies as men. Our patterns of sensory-motor interactions will vary due to features of our situation. Young, for instance, indicates that this might explain the difference in performance in tasks related to spatial perception. So accordingly, given our gender identity, for instance, and other aspects of our, of our situation, we might sample sensory information differently. Now, the latter is, of course, speculative. A lot more is needed to argue that differences in our situation make a difference to perceptual processing and perceptual experience in the way described. However, I have shown that it is plausible within this framework to think that they do, doing justice in this way to the idea that perception is situated all the way down. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks.